All right, the only announcement that I am aware of is that we're, and those of you who are involved should know this, but just a reminder that we're having our deacons meeting Saturday morning at 8.30. So we had too many out sick last time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, so we're going to have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can, if necessary, confess any sins to God. Be thankful that you're not living in the Middle Ages where the dictate in the Roman Catholic Church was that you had to go to confession at least once a year and confess all your sins from the previous year uh, out loud to the priest, if you could remember them all. So we just have to say what we can, what comes to mind. God forgives us of those sins in his grace and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, your grace toward us, the fact that you love us with an infinite amount of love that's demonstrated at the cross, where we have a Savior who has uh, paid the full penalty for sin that we might have everlasting life. Father, we're thankful that we have a certain truth in your scriptures and that it is through the truth that is in your word that you are going to mature us spiritually that spiritual life is related to our walk in fellowship with you uh, through God the Holy Spirit who fills us with your word. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that you will help us to understand uh, what we are learning. And as we see in the book of Judges a, ourselves in this mirror of your word, we see our culture, we see the 21st century in America and Western Europe and much of the world Father, we pray that as believers that we will have the courage to face how the pagan worldview around us has infiltrated our own thinking and to change it, be uh, renewed, and have our thinking renewed according to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges. We're in chapter 1, and we're going to work our way as far as we can through the first chapter uh, now we've had five lessons related to introductory material, 
And so tonight we're going to be looking at these uh, first 36 verses in Judges 1, 1 to 36. And as we saw in the previous lesson, the first section of the book goes from 1, 1 down to 3, 6. And in these sections, let's get our chart up here, in 1, 1 to 3, 6, in these sections, uh, we get an introduction to the basic problem is that Israel abandoned God. That's probably the best translation for the verb that is used. It is translated as forsook or forsaken, something along those. It has the idea of just abandoned God. They turned their back on God and attempted to live life and define life on in their own terms. Now, that's nothing new. It started in the garden with Eve, and it continues to this day. And when we do that, we go from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. And we could pick just about any country, any nation in the world today, and they fit that pattern. They are maybe not quite as bad as the Canaanites. They are not going out in the public square and uh, immolating their children alive as an offering to their false god. But they are doing it in other ways. It was marked by incomplete obedience to God and compromise and failure. So that's what we see in this, in this opening section. Now, in this first chapter, this summarizes Israel's military response. God has commanded them to go into the land, to take the land, and God has commanded them to kill every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. Now, that term is really just a general term that was used for this territory. The boundaries weren't precisely defined, but in the ancient world, we see that other cultures around refer to this as the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, and they also knew that there were many other ethnic groups or tribes that lived in the land of Canaan, but the dominant uh, tribe, the dominant influence was from the, uh, was from the Canaanites. And so they had had 400 years, God said, to ripen their carnality. They had become about as evil as any human beings have ever been with the exception of the, uh, the generations before Noah's flood, where God said that, that the thoughts of their hearts were evil continuously. And so there is this uh, rejection of God on the part of the Canaanites, and now God, in his wisdom and in his providence, it seems so harsh to us. We read through the Old Testament, and we see these things that God orders, and we think, oh, it just this, this is a harsh, awful God and people have taken it that way that there's the God of the Old Testament is much different from the God of the New Testament but this is really a failure to understand the concept of love we think of love in such uh, shallow sentimental emotional uh, feel good warm fuzzy kind of ways that we we don't ever look at the side of love that must do the harsh things, that must discipline children when they're disobedient so that when they grow up they'll learn self-discipline, they'll learn not to do the things that they ought not do, and they'll learn 
learn to say no to certain passions of the flesh so that they can live a uh, responsible, stable life. Uh, that is part of love. And God looks at and the New Testament, as, as we see, and we'll see it in the passage we're in in Ephesians chapter 3, where it talks about God as the father of the patria, from pater, which is the word for father. Patria is, is the family, the community, and it's talking about the church in terms of this family and community with God the Father as the head. But God the Father as the creator of man is in that sense only uh, the, the father of the human race. We know that he's not the spiritual father of any any except those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Those are the only ones that are in the family of God. Those who have accepted the gospel in the Old Testament, which look forward to the cross, or the gospel in the New Testament. But what we have here is a, is a, is a sense of the Father, Creator Father, in that sense, overlooking all of human history. And he has a plan and a purpose that must be accomplished to bring about the plan of redemption. And so when this family comes under attack from within, from the sin natures of those who are, are completely out of control morally, ethically, spiritually, that, that he knows that where that sin will take them is where it took the generations before the flood. And so God must do something in order to protect the rest of humanity. And so he get, gave them generation after generation after generation of opportunities to turn to him, and they refused. And the result now is that the evil is so wicked that God has to, uh, as it were, surgically remove them from the uh, from life and from the human race, else they would just infect the rest of the human race with this malignancy of their uh, corruption. And so it, we have to look at it from that perspective. And so God has given this command. It's not to be identified as holy war. That is an Islamic concept, and it was a concept that was came up in the Middle Ages in relation to the Crusades, and it is not the term that is used in the original language. It is called, uh, it is called the ban. And so what that means is that they are put under the judgment of God. And so this, do not use that term holy war to describe this at all, because what happens when people do that is then they think that can justify these other things that happened with the Crusades and in Islam, but that, that won't do it because that's not the concept in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament a, at all. So what we have in this first chapter of 36 verses is a, uh, a report on Israel's decisions, the decisions of each tribe. It looks at them now as tribes as opposed to in in Joshua, it looks at the nation as a whole, but now it's looking at them as tribal groups because the general conquest has taken place where they've taken out you know, all the major strongholds of the Canaanites, the major cities. They've captured the crossroads and the trade routes and all of these things. Now 
Each tribe needs to go in and take control of their individual allotment, their individual uh, inheritance or possession in the land. And what we see here is that in the generation that follows uh, Joshua, that there is a failure, there is a, uh, a collapse. And so this report in the first chapter just describes those basic decisions that they made. Some were good, some weren't good, and as you go through the report, it gets increasingly bad. Uh, The reports are given in a somewhat geographic manner, starting in the south with Judah and then moving towards the north, but it also follows a spiritual pattern because those in the south in Judah are more obedient to God and more responsive to him, although it isn't uh, absolute. So those these 36 verses give us that just a basic report of how their volition is operating and it uh, uh, provides the, the positive results as well as the negative results. And then in the second chapter, this is where the writer is is giving us an, his editorial interpretation, as it were. This is the divine viewpoint of history. And what we learn from this is that uh, the chapter 1 is looking at what is happening at the human realm, at the physical realm. Chapter 2 is looking at the dimension that goes beyond the physical realm. Now, here's a point of application is when we are watching the events that are happening in our world, when we're watching the news, we think about the past election or past elections for for several years. We think about the drift in our society and in our culture. We're just looking at it from that that human realm that we don't see, we don't have a prophet who's going to interpret that for us. We have pastors who are going to attempt it, but they don't have a word from God to tell us exactly what is going on because they don't know. And some pastors in some denominations actually think they are prophets and they can, can, can do that. All we can do is identify certain patterns that happen w- within history and within that framework. And there's a pattern here that chapter 2 develops that we can see that works its way out in other nations, cultures, civilizations, and that those who turn their back on God are going to are in effect turning their back on on reality. And so chapter two gives the theological significance of Israel's actions. And so when you put the two together, you see the, the nature of reality, that we live in a, in a universe that is physical, but it is surrounded, and, and I think that it is penetrated by an immaterial reality that we don't see, that we can't measure, we can't put it under the microscope, we can't uh, touch it or feel it or have any experience with it unless these few instances where God uh, moves from one to the other, allows the angels to move from the immaterial to the material in order to ad- for uh, the advancement of his plan. And so in this church age, we are to trust in God. We are not to count on 
these kinds of physical manifestations, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, we are to walk by, by faith and not by sight. And so we are not to live our lives based on empiricism and based on uh, rationalism alone. We are to trust in the Word of God, and that is our ultimate, uh, our ultimate authority. And then when we get down into chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, we see the explanation of what will happen, that God has allowed these nations to live to test Israel, and there are going to be these uh, cycles that take place in history. And so that's the introduction uh, to the book. We covered that mostly last time. And what we learned from that are three basic principles. These three basic principles are, first of all, when human beings act in disobedience to God by rejecting what God has revealed and either nonverbal revelation or verbal revelation, then the result is disastrous. The consequences are unintended by us, but we think that we can do the right thing when we don't pay attention to God and the end result is always a catastrophe. It always brings disaster. A second thing that we learn here is that God is not this harsh God that people think of in the Old Testament, but he is exceptionally kind and gracious to Israel. We often look at this, and to a large degree this is true, that in light of the Mosaic Law, in light of Deuteronomy, we think of Deuteronomy 29, we think of Leviticus 26, where God starts off in Leviticus 26 that if you do what I tell you to do, then I will bless you. But if you don't, if you are disobedient, then I will bring judgment on you to get your attention. And so there's five levels of discipline that God's going to bring on Israel. And we refer to these as the five cycles of judgment, the worst of which was that they would be removed from the land. Now, the reason that's important is because God promised them that piece of real estate in perpetuity forever and ever to Abraham. And God says, if you disobey me, I'm taking you away from that promise. So the location of blessing is not going to be enjoyed by you. Now, that's, that's really important because that tells us that none of that directly applies. There may be similarities, but it doesn't directly apply to any other nation because God hasn't given a piece of real estate to any other nation. There may be similarities, but the French don't have a God's right to the land in France. The uh, British do not have a right by, given by God to the British Isles. The Chinese do not have a right given by God to the land that they inhabit. And the United States, the citizens of the United States, have no divine right to this land. There's only one nation that God's ever given real estate to, and that's Israel. Now, God determines the boundaries for these other nations, but God also raises up nations and he destroys nations. He is in control of history. Only Israel has a God-given right to that piece of re- to any piece of real estate. No other nation has a contract with God that gives them uh, gives them the land. So we have to be very careful not to uh, apply uh, the five cycles of discipline to anyone other than Israel. You think about how many times the French have failed; they're still in France. 
Are the Germans, they're still in Germany. Are the Russians, they're still in Russia. God's not going to remove the, the Russians from Russia, or the French from France, or the Germans from Germany, because he didn't take, give them that land. It, it doesn't apply to them. But there are similarities, and so we can, we can see applications there. And all through this, this book, we see that God, in spite of the fact that he's given them those five cycles of discipline, and he's going to, uh, he's going to punish them accordingly, he also treats them in grace in many, many ways. They, they are not destroyed. They go 400, over 400 years, 350 to 400 years, and God never removes them from the land. Uh, the, the time from, from David, David is anointed somewhere in the vicinity of about 1,000 B.C., maybe, uh, maybe 1,020 B.C., somewhere in there. From 1,020 to 586 is how long? Some of you who, who are better at arithmetic than I am uh, know the answer to that, but it's a little over 400 years. So it's a comparable time period to this period. So from David until 586, uh, Israel's in the land, then God kicks Judah out because 150 years earlier, he already kicked out the northern kingdom. So he goes through almost the same amount of time in the period of the judges and doesn't remove them from the land. That's, that's grace and mercy in action. Even in the discipline God brings on the nation during this time, he's going to deal with them in mercy and in grace. So mercy and grace are not incompatible with justice and righteousness. That's, that's what the liberal wants to say is because they can't grasp that. They can only end up with some kind of a emotional concept of love that is always permissive, something like that. Third thing we learned from this is that the ultimate causation of events in history is not found in human volition alone. It is found in divine causation. And the reason I emphasize that is you have so many people who get attracted to various theories of economics and politics and the rise and fall of nations but they locate all of the cause and effect within creation. And they look at things like weather, that weather is changing. Oh, it must be because we're doing something wrong, rather than thinking it might be due to spiritual decisions that we're doing wrong. They locate the cause in something like using fossil fuels or other things like that. But the reality that we see in the book of Judges, and if you go back to the cycles of discipline, is God says, if you're obedient to me, I will bring the rains in the uh, former months and in the latter months, and you will have abundant crops. But if you disobey me, I will bring drought. Now, you can't draw an empirical cause and effect between spiritual obedience to God and the weather. But God makes it clear. God also said, if you are obedient to me, then uh, we'll get, he will remove from the land the, um, uh, the, the, anim the voracious animals 
that would attack the wolves and the lions and the bears that would attack their cattle and their sheep. And God says, but if you're disobedient to me, then they will, they will increase in the land. And we're so silly in our world where we are uh, at, the, uh, you know, at the mercy of these PETA groups and other groups that love animals that we're just going right ahead and repopulating our ranch lands and farmlands with wolves and bears and others because their numbers have died out, not realizing that that was a blessing from God. And so we, it just shows what happens in spiritual rebellion is that there is a reversal of values and a reversal of absolutes. So what we see here is in typical Old Testament Hebrew fashion that history is divided into two arenas. There's the material and there's the spiritual. And that in the material, physical, earthly realm where human beings live their lives and make their decisions and exercise their volitional responsibility or irresponsibility, they reap the consequences, whether it's blessing or whether it's judgment. But then the other realm is the realm that intersects with the physical realm, and that's the realm where God, in his providential care, oversees human history. And he is working all things together for good. And that is a great verse, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, because we know that God is working behind the scenes to bring everything together. Ultimately, when all is said and done, we will rejoice at the wisdom of God and the care of God in the way he provided for us in this world. So what happens with Israel's, what happens with many people throughout history, many nations, many cultures, is that when they deny that the impact of the spiritual realm and the significance of obedience to God, then the result is that they do the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. What was Satan's temptation? He said, God, God doesn't want you to have this because then you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. In other words, you'll be the one who defines good and evil and God wants to be the only one who defines good and evil. And so what happens from that point on in the fall is every human being wants to be and act like, a, like his own God and define good and evil. Now, in different cultures at different times, there has been a, a recognition of authority, recognition of some sort of external uh, morality, external spirituality that absolutes come from somewhere outside of us. And that has happened numerous times. But today... We live in a nation and in a culture where that is no longer true. We have taken Eve's desire to be like God to a whole new level. To, we have put it on steroids and blown it up that every person wants to define their own reality to the point where there is no unifying uh, truth other than power. And that is what we see. And that eventually is what has happened historically in many different civilizations. What we see today is, or what we have usually seen in history, 
and I've, I've walked us through this many times in the past, what we have typically seen in history is that we divide human thought into two categories. We have divine viewpoint, that is the, that is the united view of God that is presented from Genesis to Revelation in the Scriptures that gives us information about reality, that all reality is created by God. He is the only one who can define reality, and because he is omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent, he is the only one who can oversee reality. That it takes, uh, reality is so complex that it takes, it necessitates a God who is omnipotent and omnipresent to be able to oversee things. But through most of human history, things are fairly simple. You either have, for example, in ancient Egypt, you have the worship of their pantheon, the head of the pantheons, the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh is the one who is the God incarnate. You go to Greece, slightly different, but you have your gods and goddesses who reside up on Mount Olympus, and they have uh, various ways in which they interact with the human race, but you have just, that, that's your pagan view. And you have theoretically the option to reject that and turn to God. So we just have these, these usually these simple choices. Human viewpoint is pretty monolithic in most cultures. But today, we don't have a united worldview. We don't have a homogenous pagan view anymore. Up until the, the end of the, uh, of the 19th century, there was pretty much a united worldview in terms of the external pagan worldview. But what happens by the end of the 19th century, remember you go through a period from roughly 600, 500, 400, somewhere in there, pick your date, up until and through the Protestant Reformation where you have a unified theistic worldview. And there were a lot of different uh, differences within that worldview, but they all believed there was a God and God created everything and we were created in God's image. That's, that's basically part of and, and, and the foundation for Western civilization and the impact of Judeo-Christianity. But once you hit the 1600s and you go into the Enlightenment, which was a full-bore intellectual revolt against the Judeo-Christian worldview, it is, it is replaced by what comes to be known as modernism. Modernism reaches its full flowering in the 19th century. And modernism builds on the rationalism and the empiricism of the 16th and 17th century with the idea that, that man, based on his intellect and his experience and based on his uh, use of logic and reason can find answers to all the big questions of life. We don't need God. We don't need God. We, we, we can work it out ourselves. This is the essence of humanism, and that really started uh, with the Renaissance, which was a, a return to the humanism of the classical period. And so in the in the uh, 16, 1700s, the Enlightenment thinking lays the foundation for modernism, and modernism is the idea that we can understand everything without God. All we need is a proper interpretation 
uh, of things around us. And so there's pretty much two options. You're either going to think like within Western civilization, you're going to think like a Christian in a large sense. You're going to think within a Judeo-Christian worldview, or you're going to think within a purely pagan worldview that is identified as modernism. But modernism is bankrupt because finite reason and finite experience cannot ever reach a point where it can answer the questions of life. It's inadequate because it's not based on omniscient. Its knowledge base is inadequate. And so we had that development of the modern worldview, and it fell apart. From a Christian perspective, their morality and the value system of a modern worldview, the modernist worldview, was really stolen from Christianity. They still held on to the ethics and the values and the concept of moral absolutes that were part of the previous worldview. They had no right to those things. And as time went by, more and more intellectuals realized that, and they realized that that rationalism and, and, and empiricism could not answer the, the questions of life. And so what happens is that because these deeper questions of life could not be answered satisfactorily, it failed. Without a creator God who stands outside of space and time, outside of creation itself, as an infinite personal reference point to give meaning to all that is in his creation, then we can't satisfy the longing that has been put inside the human soul by God. Uh, Some have said that there is a vacuum inside the soul that only God can fill. And there's different ways it's expressed. The writer of Ecclesiastes suggests that, that, that there is a yearning in the center of man's soul that only God can satisfy. But having rejected God, then meaning and purpose have to be sought somewhere else. Value, significance, all of those things have to be sought somewhere else. And only within the Judeo-Christian worldview and the strict teaching of the Bible can we understand how to have a right relationship with our Creator and therefore fulfill our destiny? Because we've been created in the image of God, and therefore that imageness must be in right relationship with its Creator. But modernism failed, and so because we couldn't come up with a good term to describe what we were after modernism, we just came up with this very bland term called postmodernism. It's after modernism. It is postmodernism. What postmodernism does, it rejects all the foundations of modernism. It rejects logic and reason as a way to reach and answer the questions of life. And so with the collapse of modernism, what comes along is skepticism, irrationalism, nihilism, that everything is just going to evaporate into nothingness, and mysticism, that values become totally relative, that since we can't find an overarching narrative to explain everything, because we've rejected the Bible, then what we're left with is just each person gets to make up their own narrative and their own values 
whenever they want to. That's exactly where Israel got to in the book of the Judges. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. So in the place of modernism, you get postmodernism, where people look totally within themselves for meaning and value, and so they are swallowing Satan's lie to Eve, hook, line, and sinker. And each person becomes their own God and defining their own reality. And uh, as a result of that, they are defining right and wrong and meaning and purpose. And this is very shaky ground, but postmodernism has failed. And now there's a lot of discussion as to what's following postmodernism. What are we facing now? Because postmodernism is pretty much collapsed. It hasn't, doesn't answer anything. And so some have suggested something called post-postmodernism. Others have suggested uh, various other things. But what, it is, what is appearing on the horizon is a mixture of elements of Marxism, of something that uh, Andy, Dr. Andy Wood spoke about last week at the conference, critical race theory. If you still haven't gotten your mental fingers around that concept, he did a very good job last, last Wednesday afternoon uh, going over uh, critical race theory. And some have suggested that critical race theory and, uh, and Marxism and some other things are really coming together now in this, this new pagan worldview that is shaping Western civilization. Now, the reason I've taken so long to define this is we have to understand that, that we're not in Kansas anymore. And by that I mean we're not in the world of the 50s and 60s where some of you grew up. We're not in the world of the 80s and 90s where... Uh, many of us uh, reached maturity where others uh, were growing up. We're in some, some uncharted territory right now that, is, that takes relativism to a whole new radical level. The only hope for the human race that there's ever been is God and the grace of God. What we now see is something that is worse than postmodernism because every person not only chooses their own values, now they can choose what words mean. And they change the meaning of words. You just try to talk to some of these people who are enmeshed in the current uh, subculture that's dominating, that's influenced by social Marxism and critical race theory and these other things. And they're defined, they, they've got a whole new definition for racism, but you have to be careful. If you try to nail it down, it'll be like nailing macrobiotic jello to the ceiling. You just can't do it because they're going to wiggle away as quick as you can. And so it's almost impossible to even have a conversation because grammar and language are inherently based on logic. And if you reject logic, what happens is you start redefining words and terms, and they can mean anything to anybody at any given time. And so we wonder uh, how you listen to somebody and they make some comment, and then immediately on social media they are destroyed within the next couple of hours as a racist, the most vile term that comes along today. 
And many people say, well, I don't even know what they said that would be racist. Well, that's because you're using a dictionary to define it, but the the new generation has thrown that away. Racism is anything that disagrees with them on any given day, and that could be one thing one day and something else the next day. And and once we come to understand that, we see how all of this is breaking down the very fabric uh, of, of culture. Now, the reason that I have gone through all of this is just simply that we have to go to the New Testament to understand a very profound warning by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8. He says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. That's what all of this is, critical race theory, social Marxism, postmodernism, modernism, Uh, paganism, all of these things, witchcraft, mysticism, going back to Eastern mysticism, Eastern religions, all of these different things are just empty deceit. They're the philosophies and religions of man. They're according to the tradition of men and according to the basic uh, principles of the world and not according to Christ. We must understand that there is a biblical worldview and we cannot compromise it. And last week there was a presentation by Greg Allen that dealt with how social Marxism is infiltrating evangelicalism. And every day it seems I'm reading some other article that relates to how some religious leader is caving in. He wants to uh, make himself acceptable to the culture at large and he's throwing away the Bible. You have a church up in Tennessee recently that says, that you know, the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is just another book. Well, that's nothing new, but it's, it's just packaged differently today than it was when they said it in, in 19th century liberalism. That package was modernism. This package is something completely different. So all of this stuff that we see around us seems very new to us, and... You know, we we hear a lot of these explanations and it's nothing more than philosophical jargon and uh, justification trying to uh, obfuscate the basic issue, which is just rebellion against God. And modern man's problem isn't new. It started in the Garden of Eden. It's it's maybe a new idea in packaging, but it's the same old lie. And so we have to be like the sons of Issachar mentioned later on in Chronicles and understand the times. And this book of Judges does that. It is a mirror into our culture because they were taking more relative... It didn't have all the fancy philosophical jargon attached to it, but they were taking more relativism to a greater extent Uh, almost as bad as the Canaanites. And by the end of the book, as I pointed out, they are outdoing the Canaanites. So this is what's being introduced, these cycles at the very beginning. So let's get into Judges uh, chapter 1. There we go. Now the death of Joshua... Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
Now notice what's happening here. It's very important in terms of the theme of this book uh, because later on you don't find the children of Israel asking God anything. They're putting God first. This is uh, uh, the people have had their, seen the victories under Joshua. Actually, that generation is on the transition on the way out. The next generation is coming up, but the elders who knew Joshua understand that, and so they ask these questions. And uh, the, the, if you remember, Joshua is the general who replaced Moses. In fact, the book of Joshua begins almost in the, with the identical phrase. It starts off now after the death of Moses. Now it's after the death of Joshua, but there's no new leader. Moses appointed Joshua. Now Joshua is outside of Adam and Eve. Joshua is the only other person in the Bible that doesn't have any parents. Do you know that? He's Joshua, the son of Nun. See, there you have it in the Hebrew, in the street sign. Yehoshua ben Nun, Nun. Joshua, the son of Nun. And they're asking, now that Joshua is gone, they have no leader to turn to, and so they go to the high priest. That's the only way that they could approach God. And if you remember in this photo, we have a picture of the uh, breastplate of the high priest. And on the front, you have 12 uh, stones, semi-precious stones. Each one represents a different tribe of Israel. But on his shoulders, these shoulder boards in the way it's depicted here, uh, on these shoulder boards, you had something that we're not sure about called the Urim and the Thummim. And this was a means by which God would answer questions. And we don't know if they vibrated, if they glowed, or just how it worked, or if the high priest took them off and cast them like lots. We just have no idea. But it was a means whereby they could get direct revelation from God and various um, uh, uh, various questions. And so their question is, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites? Now, we're going to read about various other groups that are in Canaan. We'll talk about the uh, sons of Anak, the Anakim. We'll talk about the Perizzites, and we'll talk about uh, Hittites and various other groups. But the dominant group were Canaanites. And in, uh, in Egypt, you have this depiction on the tomb of Kunimhotep II, and it is a picture of Asiatic traders coming from the area of Canaan, the area of Canaan, uh, coming into, uh, into Egypt. And so what this does is it helps us to see that these people that the Bible's talking about and the events fit the context of the, uh, of the second millennium B.C., and so everything that the Bible talks about is, is documented in something like that in terms of the way people lived and conducted business in the ancient world. And so now they're going to get an answer from God, and this is an answer that is stated verbally now, whether that comes through uh, the high priest or a prophet, we don't know, or whether God spoke to someone, uh, it never tells us. 
And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so I have a street sign there with Yehuda, Judah in Hebrew. And Judah is going to go up. Now, what's interesting here is that as we look at these, uh, the, the opening here, we go from verse 3 down through verse 21. So we have 18 verses that are describing, or 19 verses that are describing Judah. What is going on uh, with Judah? And when we finish that, there'll be one verse on Benjamin. There's about five or six verses on the group that's called the Sons of Joseph, and that's the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. So, and then we go through various others. There's several that are even left out in the list, but we get the general idea. So this is Judah. Why is Judah so important? Because the prophecy of Joseph, excuse me, of Isaac, uh, Jacob, rather, Jacob to, uh, to, the, to his sons, just before he died in Genesis 49, he says to Judah that the scepter will not depart from the tri- tribe of Judah. And so this is a messianic prophecy that the lion of Judah, a reference is mentioned there, reference to the future ruler, the messianic ruler. And so what the writer of Judges is doing is pointing out that Judah is significant because of all of the tribes. Judah is at this point the most obedient, even though they have some failures and some flaws. Are they so? They are going to go into the uh, southern part, the area south of Jerusalem, and they are to conquer it and take control of it. And here's a good aerial shot of the hill country of Judah. And so you can see in the foreground that it's green and and fairly lush. But as you get uh, further to the south and to the east, it gets drier and drier as you move in the direction of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. So this is the hill country of Judah. The hill country of Judah is in the center of the country. It is south of Jerusalem and uh, it's, it runs along this ridge that's really the backbone of the country. And north of Jerusalem, you have the area of Samaria. And Samaria is where the northern tribes uh, had their, their land. And so Judah says in verse 3, To Simeon his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with them. And so they uh, unite themselves and they are allied. Simeon had fewer uh, people after the, uh, at the book of Numbers with the final uh, census that was taken. They had lost an, uh, a high number during the wilderness wanderings. And so they needed a strong tribe to uh, ally themselves with in order to take control of their territory. So Judah went up, and the, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 
men at Bezek. Now, we don't know exactly where Bezek is located. We think it is because of all of the geography that's involved here and because this is part of the allotment to Judah, that it must be in the area south of Jerusalem. And there are a couple of places that are identified, and the picture is of one of them, and it's in the hill country of Judah to the south. And uh, they kill 10,000 men at this town, this city of, of, of Bezek. And as they go there, they are going to, uh, after they've killed them, they're going to capture the king who is uh, of that city-state, who is Adonai Bezek. That's not his name. Adonai means Lord. Bezek is the name of the village or the town. And so it means the Lord of Bezek, the ruler of Bezek. And so here we have, uh, they're, they're going to cut off their hand, his, his toes and his thumbs. And here is a picture. You may not be able to see it real well, but it is a depiction of scribes counting severed hands from Medinet Habu around uh, 1160. So this is in the general time period. This is a way of uh, disarming people, almost literally. You cut off their thumbs and toes. You can't hold a sword. You can't throw a spear. You can't use a bow and arrow if you don't have thumbs and and you can't run well if you don't have your big toes, you don't have balance. And so this is um, how they handled a disarmament treaty in the ancient world. And this was typical among the pagan nations. You don't have dismemberment as a penalty for anything in the Mosaic Law. Some people get confused over that. If you look at the Quran, you have dismemberment for thieves. You cut off their hands. You cut off a hand the first time and then the other hand the second time. But you don't have that in the Bible. You don't have dismemberment as a, as a criminal uh, penalty. But this is how they operated in the, in the ancient world. And so verses 5 and 6 tell us that they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, fought against him and defeated him and the Canaanites and Perizzites, and then Adonai Bezek flees. He does a runner, and they capture him, and they cut off his thumbs and toes, and that's a limestone toe from a votive offering in, that's in, uh, uh, that was found in Cyprus. So they're cutting off his, his big toe, and this is what he says. See, he's a picture of how the Canaanites operated, pagans. He says... Seventy kings with thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. This is how the pagans did things. See, you want to deal with your enemies, but a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And we've lost sight of that in our culture. We've picked up the idea that the end justifies the means. That is the essential ethic of Marxism. As long as we get to the right conclusion, it's okay. It validates whatever horrible things we have to do to get there. And so uh, the, the uh, pagan Canaanites are uh, dismembering their enemies to disarm them. And so he recognizes that, that this is some sort of divine judgment. He doesn't talk about Yahweh. He's not a believer. 
He says, God, whatever that meant to him, has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem. So that tells us they're somewhat close to Jerusalem, probably to the south of there. Brought him to Jerusalem. There he died. And then we go to the next episode. The children of Judah fought against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at this time is a very, very small place. I'll show you a couple of pictures. It's a very small place. Uh, Jerusalem is, is inhabited by the Jebusites. And it's, it's a very, very small, those of you who've been there, you know how, how small the city of David area is. Well, probably at the time, at this time, it, it, they didn't even have the, all of that little peninsula there uh, under their uh, inhabited. But remember, in the ancient world, everybody has a farm. Everybody is agricultural. The only people that are in the towns, really living in the towns, are those that are the administrators, those that are running the town. Uh, so it's not where everybody would live. You don't have this concept of a, of a heavy urban environment. So let me show you a couple of pictures here. Here we're looking from above the Mount of Olives, which is in the foreground at the bottom. You can see the white area. That's a, a Jewish graveyard. And we're looking down across the top of the Mount of Olives down to the uh, Temple Mount here. And so to the south of the temp Temple Mount, you see this area right here? This is the eastern hill. This is the city of David. This is where uh, the, the Jebusites had Salem, Jerusalem. To the north, there's the western hill. And down below is the Gihon Spring, which is where they would anoint the kings. So this gives us a, a good view, uh, aerial view of Jerusalem and how small it was, very, very small. Here is a picture taken in the late 1800s. Just compare that. Those of you who've been there, compare that to what it is uh, today and compare it to the previous picture. This was uh, some uh, 150 years ago. Again, another photo. And so this is just a very small area. This is an artist's depiction of, uh, of the city at the time of Hezekiah. So it would be even smaller back then because here you have the temple up here and then this area down here is the uh, city of, of Jebus. So archaeologically, they've discovered these various walls here. Down here to the left is where the... Uh, Gihon Springs is located, and you're looking with the temple area to your back, and so you're looking due south along this little uh, finger of a ridge, which is where the city was located. Here you have a picture of um, a Syrian soldier setting fire to a besieged city. This was common in various different uh, depictions in the ancient world. You have uh, pictures of of the uh, armies setting fire to the city that they are attacking. And here you see it also uh, in this, this depiction. You see the dead bodies lined up over here. And it gets quite graphic. So verse 9 we read, And afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south. So they're continuing to go drive south. And also in the lowland, the lowland is called the Shephelah. That's the uh, 
the plains along the coast of the Mediterranean. But look at what happens in verse 10. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now, why is that important? Why is Hebron important? What happened in Hebron? Uh, Hebron formerly was known as Kiriath Arba. But we first learned about Hebron when? We learned about it back in Genesis chapter, uh, well, in the story of Abraham, but in Genesis chapter 23 when Sarah dies, what happens? He goes to, Abram doesn't own any land. He doesn't, he has not done a pre-need funeral. He hasn't purchased a burial plot ahead of time. And so he goes to make a deal with the uh, Hittites who live there. And he purchases this land. They want to give him to him, but he purchases the cave of Machpelah. And today there is this building that is on top of it that preserves it. That is, was built by Herod the Great just as he rebuilt or, or built up the temple. He was, a great, uh, uh, he was a great builder, loved architecture. But then there's this note at the end of verse 10 that says, And they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Now, who are those guys? Well, what we learn from the scriptures is that they are the descendants of the Anakim. They are descendants from a man named Anak, uh, that he's mentioned again in Judges one twenty, also in Joshua 15.14. And they lived in this hill country. The sons of Anak were giants. These, when the, Remember when the uh, spies go into the land, they say, we, we can't win this one. Uh, there are giants in the land. There's a lot of people. There's too many people for us to deal with, and they have walled cities. So the, um, it's noted here that it is going to be Caleb that takes them out, that, that it's no trouble for God to defeat the giants. And remember, Caleb and Joshua were the spies who came back and said, we can do it. We can trust God because God can do it. And so here's Caleb given that victory to defeat the remnants of the sons of Anak in uh, Hebron. Here's a roadside uh, directions. You have Jerusalem here. Going, that would be going south. And here you have the Machpelah Cave. And, and we've been there on a couple of trips. And that is, and at the top, Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba is separate from um, uh, Hebron right now, and that's a Jewish settlement, whereas Hebron is an Arab, Arab city. This gives you an idea of the picture. If you have jo, uh, Joel Kramer's book, uh, this is the area that he's really talking about, the, the, the uh, tell. Uh, in about the, I think it's the first or second chapter that he's going through. And this shows some of the old walls from uh, that time period. And we see that um, you have a guy standing right here, if you can see him. That, whoop, that gives you a sense of scale, uh, these walls that were uh, uh, around the city. And this is a mosaic of defeated men you notice the size of this man, this man represented and these defeated men over here. Now, they should be 
that, that could be just a depiction of making him big because he's the one who won, but it still has that sense of the giants. Then the next thing they did was they went further south down to Devere, which was formerly called Kiriath Safer. So in this map, here's the area uh, around uh, north of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem, and then down here is Hebron, and further south is Devere. So what has happened is they have headed directly south from Jerusalem, taking out Hebron first, and then Devere, and that's going to give them uh, control around the uh, the area. So Caleb says, whoever attacks Kiriath Safer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Oxa as wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now there's some confusion there. Is he is Kenaz uh, Caleb's younger brother, or is um, uh, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. I think he's Caleb's nephew personally, but it's hard to tell from the grammar. And he's the one who's going to take Devere, and we'll get into that. He's the first judge. We'll get into that episode later. And he's given Oxa as his wife. And in verse 14, she comes to her father, showing great respect to him, and she urges him to give something to them other than the land that he initially gave them because she wanted to have uh, have springs on the land. And so there's a picture there of a street called uh, Othniel. Now, in this, I put this in here because it has the mention here on this direction sign at Tarpat Junction of the tomb of Jesse and Ruth, and also the cave of Othniel, and uh, the oak of Abraham. That's what's so great about going to Israel. You just get to go and see all these places that, that were biblical, and you get that sense that of all the things that happened there. Here's a picture of Oxa comes on a donkey, so here's a girl riding a donkey uh, coming into... Uh, area in down in in uh, in Judah, and in Devere you have the lower springs, which are depicted here. And this is where these are sheep. I don't know how well that shows up. These are sheep that are being watered here. Here's another picture as well uh, of this area where the springs are. You probably you have a well there, and and also here. And it happened in verse 14 when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you've given me land in the south, which is dry desert. Give me also springs of water. And so Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. We just saw that picture. Then we're told, as we wrap up this section, the next four verses, the children of the Kenite Moses' father-in-law went up from the city of Palms. That term normally refers to Jericho, but this is some other city probably down along uh, the Dead Sea uh, in the wilderness of Judah. And uh, they come up and dwell among the people 
in Judah. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zaphath and utterly destroyed it. It's under the ban. They, do, they, they, they executed the ban is what the Hebrew is indicating. So the name of the city is called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. The Gaza Strip, that's where Gaza was located. So when we look at this map, we can identify these locations. Here is uh, just uh, this area here is Ashkelon. This next area is Gaza. And this area here is where Ekron is located, but it's not marked on this particular map. So you see Judah is coming all the way down here. They're going all the way over to the coast and taking all of this territory. Here's Devere right here. So they're taking all of this territory down to Beersheba and Arad all the way over to the Dead Sea. So they're taking a huge swath of territory. This is Ashkelon. This is the tail of Ashkelon that's indicated by the yellow line. And it talks about the fact that in this area... Uh, they haven't quite defeated all of the uh, all of the Canaanites. In verse 19, so the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lone land because they had chariots of iron. And here's some depictions of of the chariots. They they aren't the kind of chariots that you see in if you remember Ben Hur. Uh, those were from uh, uh, larger, heavier chariots. The, the Egyptian chariots were much lighter and seem almost flimsy by comparison. Here is a uh, picture of one, I believe. Uh, it's very similar to one we saw last year in the Antiquities Museum in Cairo. So Judges 1.20, they gave Hebron to Caleb, and Moses, as Moses said, then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. So we'll end there and come back next week on verse 21 to go to the end of the chapter, uh, pulling together this, this conquest and understanding that from this point on, it just gets worse. That's the best that's happened, the victories of Judah and Simeon. The other tribes apparently were very quick in assimilating to the Canaanite culture. Father, thank you for being able to look at these things, seeing that spiritual decisions have consequences for culture, have consequences for the future, have consequence for economics and for families. And Father, we know that those who abandon you will suffer consequences because you have created reality in that way. And those who are uh, defining their own existence on their own terms are in rebellion against you and they have set themselves up as their own idol. They are filled with self-worship. Father, keep us from that. That is the trend of our sin nature. Help us to focus on the truth of your word and trust in you in all, in every area of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.